The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it's time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with the charming Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? We are so glad you're listening today. Hey, Christy. Hey, Jess. Hey, so how is your flow? Real quick, gotta ask. Same old. Not much has changed this month. I don't have much to report. I'm just still getting used to the the heavier flow and the ugh, the PMS. The PMS honestly is what's killing me. And I don't know recognize it right away that you know like I'm I'm really moody and yeah, but oh right, you don't you like things you feel a certain way before you recognize that it's associated exactly. with your premenstrual yep. experience. Gotcha. Cool. How are you? Um, I'm menstruating. Are you? I am flowing. I am flowing. Yeah, I only sound this giddy because I'm a trained performer, <laughs> but I would love to be in bed, and I'm not. That's about it. But you're with me, so. <laughs> Actually, that's better. I'd rather be with you. Yeah. And and what we want to talk about mostly today is the very special show we have. We have the remarkable Paula James, Dr. Paula James with us, and we get to speak with Michelle. Yes, because today we're talking about what is disordered. We had an amazing opportunity to interview a patient and member of the Bleeding Disorders community, and she is going to share her unique experience with us and how she has managed her extreme bleeding disorder. Yes, well, let's get into it. And it's so nice to meet you, Michelle. I've heard a little bit about you. So nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was just thrilled that she reached out because I can never say no to opportunities like this to just spread the awareness. You know, I'm a little more severe myself, but that doesn't mean somebody might not like hear it and take something away, you know? So yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm from Michigan, kind of halfway between Lansing and Detroit. And I... I married my high school sweetheart. We met in senior year of high school and we now have two babies, 16 months apart. Our daughter's about to be one year old this Friday and my son is two. Yeah, we just, we built a new house in the past year. We had a couple babies in the past two years. So it's been a whirlwind of a time, but we've been together for, it will be 14 years this February. I used to waitress, but that kind of sans COVID, you know, like I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Everything shut down. I also have a degree in psychology and human biology, just bachelor's degree, and I plan to possibly go back to school after the babies are back in school. We'll see where the world goes with mental health, I guess, because that's always been my my passion. But that's a little about me. Biology and psychology, those are your two focuses of study? Yep, yeah. On to the biology. Can you tell us a little bit about your bleeding disorder? Describe, you know, what it is and... How does it show up in your life? What is it like living with your bleeding disorder? So I have von Willebrand's type three and it's, it prevents the blood from clotting. Basically I was born without um, an enzyme. My liver doesn't make it 
and it carries one of the factors to the clotting site as well as holds the platelets together. And I don't make any of those. There's varying degrees. So being type three, I don't make any, like less than 1%. There's also type two and different degrees of that, that makes different moderations of it. And then type one, which is a little bit more mild, but also has some pretty severe, can have some pretty severe side effects. Um, uh, my kids were all supposed to be type ones genetic wise. We had genetic testing done and I actually have a type two daughter and a type one son. So kind of like a full blended family here going on. <laughs> so it's quite a complex disease. All the different types can have varying um, bleeding symptoms, type three being more severe myself. Yeah. Uh, but I also know some type ones and twos that women, especially when we go through um, puberty, starting your periods and childbirth and things like that, that's when you run into, we all have pretty much really bad bleeding issues across the board. doesn't matter your severity. Type three is different in that since there's no von Willebrand factor, it never carries any of your factor eight protein to the site of injury where it needs a clot. And so in that effect, you can have a lot of similar symptoms to hemophilia in terms of, I get some joint bleeding, muscle bleeding, just kind of random internal bleeding. I've had GI bleeds like in my stomach for spontaneous reasons. You know, normal people often will get small leaks in their in their capillaries or bumps and bruises and they're able to clot. But with von Willebrand's, it's either very delayed or with type three, maybe not at all. So we have to use replacement therapies, which actually uh, people who donate plasma, I have uh, basically human plasma in my fridge here at home that we I just reconstitute with saline and I'm able to administer that via venous or I have a port now that I got three years ago. So I just, I'm able to, through home care at home, like healthcare at home, take care of my own health. So Michelle, you, you mentioned human plasma and I'm just curious, where do you store such a thing? I actually have to have like a sterile field because I use a port, but I just have like a basket of supplies in my kitchen and a uh, little mini fridge out in our garage with human plasma in it. It's kind of strange, but that's how it's been my whole life, kind of. I learned to self-infuse at the age of eight. So I've been, and before that, my mother did it. So it's always just been home care here at home. They've taught us to kind of self-manage it. Did your OBGYN and your hematologist have a plan in place for you? What was the process of thinking through your birthing experience? Um, so I'll never forget my first appointment with my high risk pregnancy team. Yeah. I never had a doctor and everyone was like, who's your doctor? I'm like, I've had a different one. Every single appointment. It's a high risk team. It's so annoying. It's so impersonal, but I guess more hands on deck, the better, but I'll never forget that first appointment. They asked me if I wanted to abort the pregnancy and like from a medical standpoint, because I was putting myself at such big risk. And I was the first type three von Willebrand patient at the hospital to give birth there. And they, they, it was unprecedented. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know if I'd survive. And so they just laid that on the table for me. And I laughed out loud at them. Like, I don't think you understand how, like I've been working at this. I've been trying to get here. This is a dream come true, but yeah, no, thank you. So from a hematology standpoint, my doctor was all gung-ho. She was like, well, yeah, well, let's do this. Let's, we can figure this out. It can be done. 
because she goes to the medical conferences and talks to other hematologists across the country. Um, you know, she knows she's heard from others that it's a possibility. And then on the flip side of that, I had just gotten back from the first ever type three specific bleeding disorders conference in the United States. And I had met other type three women, which up until that point, I think I've only had met three in my whole life. So that's how rare it is for somebody to be that severe weight disorder in that aspect. And so meeting these women who had successfully had pregnancies, multiple, some of them, and lived to tell the story, I was like, I came home, made my appointment with my hematologist and said, I'm coming off birth control. I'm getting a port. Like I'm having children. This is possible. And so that was just, that was a super great appointment. So I had a really good appointment with my hematologist, but not such a great appointment with the pregnancy team. <laughs> but then I think that they started talking back and forth because it was all within the same hospital system. And they let the hematology team take the lead, went with all of their notes and recommendations and everything was followed to my hematologist. Like I was even induced on a day that she was to be on call in the hospital just to be safe, which was really comforting. So that was going to be my next question. So you were induced so that they could be there for you. Yeah. My second one, I went 37 weeks. My bags weren't even packed. She just came flying into this world like a month early. Were both of your births vaginal? Yeah. So, um, part of the hematology, my doctor was the, before I even got pregnant, she's like, okay, I'll warn you, you can't have epidurals. Like that's off the table. I won't do that. From my bleeding history, I was at risk of possible paralyzation from spinal bleeding. And I just wasn't a risk that she was willing to take if I were going to be under her care. And so going into all of this, I always knew I was going to have to try a natural childbirth. And so, um, no epidural and C-section was only in case of emergency. And I was going to have to be under anesthesia. I had to meet with the anesthesia team before because I, I wouldn't have the epidural. So I would have to go. I would have to be under anesthesia. Luckily, it worked out pretty well in my favor that I didn't have to have a C-section. The natural childbirth worked out well. The first one, I they did give me like a button for pain medication. But to be honest, during childbirth, it's like you're in another realm. And I never, I wasn't really remembering the, the button. At one point, my husband pushed it and got yelled at. But with the second childbirth, I did... <laughs> I knew that I wasn't going to push that button. So I asked for laughing gas and it's something that they're just now bringing back into the United States. They've been doing it over in Europe for a long time. And I loved that. That was a great option. And it worked out very well. My hematology team, my doctor would call me like weekly um, postpartum to check in on me, which was nice. Oh, wait, I want to ask one quick question. The doctor that we interviewed, she's more worried about the postpartum. Yes. Like postpartum hemorrhage? Yes. Can you talk to us about that? So that is, that was the scariest part, actually, from when I met all the women at the type three conferences, they were all warning me, like, um, a lot of them had hemorrhaged, like six weeks postpartum, like to a point where you think you're like recovering, you're good. And then some women thought, oh, my period returned really bad. Well, no, they were like hemorrhaging again. Whereas other women kind of progressively heal with bleeding disorders, there can be clots dislodging. And, and so I was kind of coached into which size clots are alarming and when to come back and to be checked out. The bigger 
size ones are alarming and things like that. We hit the dosing of the plasma really heavy. So I was on like every eight hour dosing for the first four days and then every 12 hour and then every, you know, so we were super intense with it. And they, I actually personally came off of it sooner than my team wanted me to. And they were concerned for postpartum bleeding. I can see why from all the other women's stories, but I, for both pregnancies, stopped bleeding six weeks on the day postpartum. So, um, I had went back to my three times a week schedule at that point, And they were just a little worried that maybe I had, I should have continued doing it daily, worrying about hemorrhaging because when you hemorrhage, things can happen really quickly. I guess, depending on where you live. So like I live 15 minutes from my hospital, but my hematology, but you know, I have other friends who live not suburban and, you know, out in the country and it could take them an hour, two hours, three hours to get to their hospital. And if you're hemorrhaging postpartum, I can see, you know, not everybody lives in the city it is very fearful. Oh, gives me chills. Yeah. And then we always have to worry about rush hour. So my husband was like, oh, sure, we live 15 minutes from there. But Michelle, if this happens during, you know, the work commute, we're stuck in a, a hour, hour and a half drive to the hospital. He was always freaking out about that, too. So and then my fear also was always if I had to go to a different hospital or if I was unconscious and got taken to a different hospital, my hematology team wasn't there to consult. Would I be taken care of properly? You know, that's always terrifying. So I just always make sure my caretaker, my husband, my mom was also in on the plan and you know things like that. That's really great advice. In in your breadth of experience, what other advice might you give someone with I guess with your type of VWD, um, knowing you have your daughter and son with their types, you obviously had your diagnosis as part of your upbringing. Is there anything you would say to someone who was coming into a diagnosis and it was brand new? It was like all this information, all these words, oh, all this. Goodness, yes. It's overwhelming and it's scary. And it's something that is kind of private as a woman. And a lot of women don't want to come and talk to anybody about it, let alone a doctor. But my biggest piece of advice would be get multiple doctors, go seek multiple doctors advice. One doctor may not have the answer. One doctor may not know enough to diagnose what's going on. Bleeding disorders are still relatively new. You just, you really have to be be an advocate within the healthcare system. And just remember that doctors are humans too, and they can only know so much. And so it's not a fault going to look for a second and third opinion and nobody will be mad at you for doing so. You just have to be your own advocate. Michelle, that is really great advice. Seriously. No, that's really great advice. Like you have to trust your body. You have to, you know, what you're experiencing. And then sadly, we don't live in a perfect medical system. And then I've heard those with bleeding disorders say many times over the years that it's hard when most, you know, especially if you're going to an emergency room, the ER doc might have read a paragraph about bleeding disorders in their, in their training, you know? So that's another place where I know that you typically have to really advocate for yourselves. Especially as a woman, because a lot of doctors are taught that only men can have bleeding disorders like hemophilia. And then also within families, women often say, oh, women in our family bleed heavy. We are just heavy bleeders. 
no, 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 no. Don't listen to your mom. Don't listen to your grandma. Don't listen to your aunt. If your body and your heart and your mind is saying this doesn't seem right, this doesn't feel right. Just go seek multiple opinions. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> we're clapping. We're sending you hugs. <laughs> we're yes. <laughs> that is the message every woman needs to hear about a periods or anything related to your bodies. So thank you. That's such a powerful message. If I would have listened even to my doctors throughout the year, I wouldn't have my kids. You kind of have to be your own advocate for everything in the health field and just follow your own instinct. Oh, such great advice. Thank you. Golly, thank you, Michelle, so much for sharing your story with us on Flow. And listeners, if you have a story or experience to share, it can just be so helpful for other listeners to hear it. So please send it in to us. Information on how to do that is in the show notes. It's powerful to talk about menstruation. You know, after episode two, I mentioned my little cyst. After we recorded that episode, it started draining. So that's how powerful it can be just to talk about it. So let's get talking some more to Dr. Paula James right after this quick message. Now a word from Takeda, a proud sponsor of the Flow Podcast Initiative. Takeda is the manufacturer of Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Together, we're committed to connecting you to the resources that can support you throughout your journey and to helping getting the word out to women everywhere. You have a voice, you have a community, and you have our unwavering support. To learn more, visit vonvendi.com. We are in flow. We are on flow. Christy and I are so excited to be talking with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, your specialty in the medical world, what kind of patients you see? Yes, I'm a hematologist and um, a specialist in bleeding disorders, um, predominantly inherited bleeding disorders, but all causes of bleeding. And I run the Inherited Bleeding Disorders Clinic here in Kingston, as well as our Women in Bleeding Disorders Clinic, which is a huge interest of mine and obviously aligns with the work that you folks are doing. And so I very often see women who are having problems with heavy periods or other gynecologic issues that are associated with their underlying bleeding disorder. I also run a, a research program. So I'm a clinician scientist and have a research group that's focused on things that line up with my clinical interests. So we study clotting factors and cells that make clotting factors and um, other aspects of the patient experience that women with bleeding disorders are facing. Yeah, that's such important and needed research. Yeah, I totally agree. Can you tell us in particular why a hematologist would be a part of the conversation when it comes to heavy menstrual bleeding? And the reason I ask is because to an outsider, it might seem like the job of an OBGYN. So when would they bring you in and what is your role? Yeah, that's a great question. Many women, up to 50% of women at some point in their life have problems with heavy menstrual periods. And there are a number of reasons why that can happen, many of which fall under the realm of a gynecologist. But study after study has shown that a very significant minority of anybody with heavy menstrual bleeding has an underlying bleeding disorder that's causing the problem. So 15, 20, 30%, depending on the study you read. 
So there definitely are a group of women where that's the thing that brings them to medical attention. And the thing that we need to figure out, because then our treatments are going to be focused specifically on that. There are some treatments that are great for heavy menstrual bleeding, no matter what the cause, but then there are some that are more specific, depending on the underlying diagnosis. And so to get that treatment plan exactly right, requires that diagnosis to be clear and then a hematologist to get involved if there is a bleeding disorder. Great. Thank you for that. We are actually going to go back to the treatment, but I think first, just for our listeners, if you could tell us a little bit more about genetic bleeding disorders that you mentioned, such as von Willebrand's disease and women with hemophilia A and B. So the most common bleeding disorder that we know about in people is von Willebrand's disease, as you said. And so that's the disease that's caused by either a deficiency or a dysfunction of a clotting protein called von Willebrand factor that's really important to prevent bleeding from mucous membranes like the uterus. We also see women suffering from hemophilia, um, hemophilia A and B, or deficiencies of factor eight or factor nine, respectively. And there's been this historic idea that because it's an X-linked bleeding disorder, a woman could only be a carrier and couldn't actually have a bleeding disorder herself. And that stigma and that misconception is definitely still out there that, well, women can't have bleeding disorders. Men get hemophilia. But we really understand now that women can also be affected. And that's really important in terms of getting the management right. Then we see a group of women who um, can have what's called a platelet function disorder. So platelets are little cells that help us make blood clots. And in some cases, the platelet count is normal, but they're not working right. And that can lead to similar symptoms to von Willebrand's disease. And then there's kind of a grab bag of other clotting factor deficiencies, and a group of women who have um, collagen vascular disorders or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which isn't exactly a bleeding disorder, but manifests in many of the same ways. When we're talking about menstruation specifically with some of the conditions that you've just uh, talked to us about and described to us, are there any differences that we see specifically in menstruation between those conditions? Like between those diagnoses or between women who have a bleeding disorder and everybody else? So yeah, so I guess the general public and then those with bleeding disorders. And then do you see differences, you know, between say somebody with VWD and hemophilia um, and, and other bleeding disorders? I'll maybe start with the last part first. So do we see a difference in bleeding between women with von Willebrand's disease or hemophilia or some of the other disorders I talked about? subtle differences. And so women with von Willebrand's disease tend to have what we call mucocutaneous symptoms that predominate. So skin and mucous membranes. So bruising, nosebleeds, heavy periods, that kind of thing, bleeding from the mouth. If you're looking at hemophilia, we see those symptoms, but then we also see musculoskeletal bleeding. So bleeding into muscles and joints, and that's less common in von Willebrand's disease. So There is a little bit of a subtle difference in terms of what tends to be the bigger problem, but for sure a fair bit of of overlap. And then between women with a bleeding disorder and anybody else in the general public, what I would say is that irregular periods, which many people in the general public have a problem with, are generally not caused by a bleeding disorder. Bleeding disorders don't 
cause irregular periods, they cause heavy periods. So the history is usually that a woman is getting her period every month, but that it is very heavy, you know, excessive bleeding and goes on for 10 days. And so that's something that we pay attention to when we're taking the history. Is it regular or is it irregular? Because if it's irregular, you may be dealing with another gynecologic problem and ovulatory bleeding or polycystic ovarian syndrome or something more in that category. When we talk about heavy bleeding, how does pain play into that? Does it play into that? It can for sure. And so if bleeding is heavier, I think it is quite common that we see more cramping and more discomfort in those patients as well. So those two things are correlated. So interesting. You're talking about the general population menstruators um, having irregular, that would be like how often you have your period versus the amount or the duration of blood that might come out. Yep. Fascinating. I'm curious because Von Willebrand's um, is a diagnosis that is split equally between males and females, menstruators and non-menstruators. How would you define heavy menstrual bleeding for a woman with Von Willebrand's disease? Yes, such a good question. So the official medical definition is greater than 80 milliliters of blood loss in one cycle. That's pretty useless um, clinically, because <laughs> how are you supposed to figure that out? There have been a number of studies that have looked at, okay, well, what are some things that we actually can ask patients about, and they're gonna have a clue about the answer that correlate with that level of bleeding. And so things like if you bleed for more than seven days, if you're iron deficient, if you're having to change your sanitary protection more than every hour, if you're passing large clots, those things we know correlate. So those are the kinds of questions that we ask when we're taking a history from a patient. The fact that menstrual cups are available now and some women are using them does actually in some cases give us a little bit of a better idea on volume, but we still go through all those other questions as well to, to help us figure out, is this truly heavy or not? Because one of the big problems with all of this and that leads to delayed diagnosis. And so, you know, I was talking about the fact that women come to medical attention more often than men. That's if they make it to us. There is a 15 to 16 year lag uh, very often between women developing bleeding symptoms and then actually coming to our attention. 80 milliliters. So I looked up, that's about 2.71 ounces. So I have a coffee mug here. That's probably about eight ounces. It's like not even half of that would be 80 milliliters. Over 80 milliliters would be a sign of something being up in yep. the menstruation process. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think another way, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. James, but another way that we sometimes measure it is, and you said this, you mentioned this, is the number of pads or tampons that you're going through X period of time. Is that correct? Is that another way that you might? Yeah. So if somebody's having to change their sanitary protection more than every hour, that's, that's a clue. And what happens with women who have heavy periods is they naturally ramp up the level of protection. So nobody having heavy periods is using junior tampons anymore or panty liners. P people automatically are going to start to go to super and super plus and then nighttime and overnight. And I hear horror stories about women who are bleeding through a super plus tampon and two overnight pads that are stacked on top of each other in an hour. I have patients who actually have had such bad 
pleading. This actually breaks my heart that they've ended up going to adult diapers. And when I hear about that, I mean, I'm so grateful to see those women in clinic because I absolutely know we can make things better. I get really ticked off if I find out that somebody else was aware of that and didn't twig that women should not have to be walking around during their period wearing an adult diaper. Yeah. Why do you think there's that delay in diagnosis? It's such a problem. And as I get older, I get a little bit less generous perhaps in my assessment of this. So there definitely are issues around our understanding of what's normal and what's abnormal. And so women sometimes don't realize that a 10-day period is abnormal or they've compared that to their mother, but perhaps their mother also has a bleeding disorder. And in that household, a 10-day period seems normal when it's really not. I think there's been a lack of tools and information that's generally available to help people understand this, which was the entire impetus behind the Let's Talk Period project. The other piece of it is that the lab testing is tricky. And so to diagnose these disorders, you actually need pretty specialized lab testing that isn't available in all centers. And a lot of the kinds of blood tests that a family physician might order, for example, may not pick up these conditions. You have to specifically go looking for them. So those are all of the true, and I don't know if generous is the right word, but perhaps more generous reasons for it. Where I'm coming to in my life and what I've started to realize in my career is that I think sexism has a big part to play in this. And that, you know, simply the fact that we don't, I didn't learn in medical school what's a normal period. That's an inherent bias in the way I was taught. And so we absolutely are teaching that now. But there's all these taboos and stigmas around open communication around these things that periods are seen as dirty or shameful when it's completely physiologic process that's a natural part of life. And I think all of those things probably have had a huge influence on the lack of awareness and the fact that women don't get diagnosed and are suffering with conditions that are so treatable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see it not just in bleeding disorders, but also endometriosis, PMDD. I mean, all of these period related conditions where we just simply don't trust women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We don't trust women to be, you know, credible agents of their own bodies is, is what I typically say on on the regular. I actually had a background in reproductive health before I started working in the bleeding disorders community. I'd worked for Planned Parenthood for a couple of years. I had worked in HIV prevention. And and then I started at the National Hemophilia Foundation, I think in 2011, I had never heard of Von Willebrand's disease. And I was so angry. (laughs) So (laughs) Just to piggyback off of of something that you said that really triggered that memory for me of my, you know, what, what, like, this is the most common bleeding disorder and I've never heard of it. Like, how is that possible? Same page. And so if I'm ever teaching, I actually will often start who here has heard of hemophilia and everybody's hand goes up. Who here has heard of Von Willebrand's disease? It's getting better, but oftentimes nobody's hand goes up. And depending on the size of the room, there's probably somebody in the room with von Willebrand's disease. So I completely agree that that knowledge, we just have to keep working to to get it out there. Absolutely. With providers as well. Yeah. I mean, it makes me furious when I hear that 
if a woman has realized that there's something wrong with her period, I was saying sometimes women don't realize 10 days of bleeding is abnormal, but let's say she does and she goes to her physician and gets told, oh no, that's normal. Ooh, that really burns me. Right. There's something got to get on fire about that. Yeah. It's nuts. The lack of information you mentioned being in study and just not being, it just was lacking. The idea yep. wasn't normal for menstruation was not part of the education curriculum. Mm-mm. Nope. Can we just time capsule this? How many years ago was that? Yeah, good question. So I graduated from medical school in 1996. So, I mean, it was quite a while ago, but I'm one of my roles at Queens as the course chair of the blood course for our medical students. And they absolutely learn this now. Bravo for change and continue change. But could you talk to us a little bit more about platelet dysfunctions and how it, how those, you know, affect menstruation. And if you could talk to us, like, you know, we've never heard of any of these things before. So really in layman's terms. Platelet function disorders are a group of conditions that are characterized by platelets, which are little cells that help us make blood clots not working right. And there's a spectrum of platelet function disorders with some that are very serious, like Glansman's thrombasthenia is the name of a very serious platelet function disorder where people have terrible, terrible bleeding. More commonly, though, are milder forms of platelet function disorders, but all of them present with symptoms that are just like what we see with von Willebrand's disease. So heavy periods and nosebleeds and bleeding from the GI tract and easy bruising. And when I meet somebody in clinic for the first time and I'm going through the bleeding story, I can't tell just from the story what they're going to have. And so I have to do that specialized lab testing to figure it out. Great. Thank you for that clarification. We talked a little bit about, you know, our experience with, with women with bleeding disorders. And it's so exciting to see that I think since I started working in this field in, in 2011, that so many more women specifically with hemophilia are being heard. Do you see the same thing? And what do you think is helping their voices to be heard? People like you, I think just more general awareness. I actually think the male hemophilia community has really helped here because they all have moms and lots of them have sisters and lots of them have daughters. And so I think that community has realized, hey, wait a second, we have all these loved ones that are having issues too. And so I think patient organizations as well have started to really pay attention to this. So the Canadian Hemophilia Society in Canada and the National Hemophilia Foundation in the U.S. all have people and programs that are focused on women in bleeding disorders. So, And in the medical and scientific community, it is becoming increasingly recognized. And I would say that shift has been, you know, I've been in practice for 16 years now. I would say the last 10 years I've started to, and, and even more the last couple of years, I've started to see a real shift. Yeah. As I said, I think I started in the field about 10 years ago. It does feel different and there's still work to be done, but it it does feel different. Yeah, I agree with you. The focus hasn't been on the moms, let's say. Yep. What do you think is most important if you could talk directly to those moms about the self-care that's needed to seek out diagnosis and treatment? Yeah, such a good question. I think as women and particularly as mothers, we get so focused on 
caring for our children and caring for the people around us that you're absolutely right. I think we let our own self-care go sometimes. But, you know, if somebody's struggling with heavy periods, they're at risk of becoming iron deficient. And iron deficiency makes people feel so sick, so terrible. So there's a, a study that I always quote where they looked at the quality of life in a group of women with bleeding disorders who were iron deficient from menorrhagia. It was as bad as HIV positive men with hemophilia. And sometimes when I present that, I get such surprised reactions from people. But I think one of the main messages is this stuff is so treatable. It's so treatable. And so we can fix it. And I love that in clinic, actually, when I when somebody finally does get to me and I just say, oh, we're going to make you better. Like, give us three months, give us six months, and you're going to be so much better. And, you know, people cry because I can't believe that you're listening to me, that I feel terrible. And I just such relief that there's hope for making their symptoms better because it's, you have to know what you're doing, but it's not rocket science medicine. So you, you know, you just mentioned a number of ways that, you know, people can manage their periods, but what about, you know, it's someone wants to have a baby and then they have to go off, you know, whatever medication it is. And then just through pregnancy and postpartum, Can you talk to us a little bit about that for a woman with a bleeding disorder? Yeah. And so if somebody's been had a Mirena or has been using the oral contraceptive pill, you're absolutely right. One of the things that we have to think through is, okay, well, if you want to get pregnant and we stop that or the Mirena comes out, you might have a few months of terrible periods before you get pregnant. And so tranexamic acid is a great bridge to use there. um, And we'll often do that. We talk to our patients up front, like when I make a new diagnosis in a young woman, I talk about pregnancy and that we have a lot of experience in specialized clinics with managing pregnancy and labor and delivery in women with bleeding disorders and can do that very safely. So in pregnancy, we know that a number of clotting factors, von Willebrand factor and factor eight increase. And they do that in normal women and they do that in women who have mild bleeding disorders as well. And this is adaptive. So we evolved to do that so that we don't bleed to death when we have babies. And so sometimes what happens in women who have mild forms of von Willebrand's disease is their factor levels naturally normalize. And that happens in a lot of women. And so I see everybody at 32 weeks and check their levels. And then I make the labor and delivery plan. And if the levels are normal, I write a letter that says, okay, the delivery can go ahead. However, the obstetrician or the family physician thinks it should go ahead, vaginal or C-section. No contraindication to epidural because our patients very often get denied epidurals, even if it's perfectly safe. Usually there's no problem at the time of labor and delivery. Maybe 5-10% of patients can run into problems with heavy bleeding at the time the baby's coming out. And so then we have to have either desmopressin available or factor or tranexamic acid to deal with that. A bigger issue that we see is postpartum and 25, 30, 35% of women can have postpartum hemorrhage with bleeding disorders, Spondylobrans disease or hemophilia. That's a really important thing for us to warn people about and to take precautions for. 
So I will often give people tranexamic acid for a couple of weeks after labor and delivery, which works really well. Sometimes we have to use desmopressin or factor concentrate through that period of time. We talk to women about what we expect. It's sort of like, you know, people aren't aware what a normal period is. There's not a great understanding of how much bleeding is normal after childbirth. And so the way we describe this is that the heaviest bleeding is immediately after. So in the hour or two after. And then it should steadily get better until it stops. And if it doesn't do that, if it actually ever starts getting worse, that's something for us to hear about because that might be when we need to jump in and, and give some give some treatment. That's really great information. What if you've made this plan for um, an expectant mother or person? What if they have a C-section? Because it's so common, especially here in the States. Yeah. And so, so long as the levels are normal, either mode of delivery is fine, a vaginal delivery or a C-section. And I'll say that in my letter, the more complicated scenario is if somebody has a more severe kind of bleeding disorder, their levels may not normalize at the time of labor and delivery. And so then I have to make a much more involved plan. If somebody doesn't correct their levels, let's say somebody with type three von Willebrand's disease, which is the most severe form of the disease where you have absolutely no von Willebrand factor. The levels don't go up at all. So what we actually do for those patients is we admit them electively and I start a continuous infusion of von Willebrand factor. So I'm basically giving them a continuous IV drip. And then the obstetrician would decide either the right way to deliver because the baby's breech is a C-section or we're actually going to induce and try for a vaginal delivery. But we do that whole thing very controlled. So we always admit them on a Monday, first thing in the morning, so that everything is kind of happening controlled during the week when we're all around all the time. And that's more involved. But the C-section, the answer to your question is that um, C-section can be safe as well for women in bleeding disorders. Definitely. I would love to have Amy talk a little bit because Amy, who knows our community so well, our amazing producer of Flow, Amy Board is in the house. <laughs> I am. This is like my flyby question. But as we were preparing for this, thinking back to my summer camp days, I had two teenagers, uh, female teenagers that had very similar first period experiences. They were very traumatic, both had hospital stays, blood transfusions, and one had no family history. And it was, they had no idea what they were dealing with. You know, it was one of those stories where they were just, I mean, it took forever to not only get care, but, but a diagnosis. I mean, it took forever. The other had a family history and she was actually diagnosed when she was three or four. So she quote unquote knew that she had von Willebrand's disease and had the same experience. And my question is, you know, for kids or with families that have a family history, is there any way to prepare for that first menstrual cycle? Is what, what can families or parents or teenagers do as they prepare for that first menstrual cycle, knowing that that might be a possibility? Oh, a hundred percent. So um, we will have a pre-menarchal visit with girls when they're 10, 11, 12, looks like they're getting close to starting their period in our women in bleeding disorders clinic. So we bring them to our clinic, they meet with hematology, who they would have already known because, you know, if they had been diagnosed already, but then also meet with gynecology. And we talk about, here's what it can be like. We make sure they have tranexamic acid at home so that if they run into trouble, they're not necessarily having to come to the hospital or phone a physician to get treatment. We make sure that they have it in hand. 
if there's anything else we think that they might need in terms of additional treatment, if it's somebody with a more severe bleeding disorder, desmopressin or factor concentrate, we, we get them ready and let them know quite specifically, you know, if you're having this kind of bleeding, if you're changing your pad or your tampon every hour and that's going on for a few hours, you, you phone us, you got to phone us. We are always available. It may not always be, you know, me who's on call at my center, but one of my colleagues. And I think those of us who look after women with bleeding disorders, we get this reputation of being kind of fierce and very protective. And you know, if one of my patients was in trouble, my colleagues will text me at home and just say like, you know, help me out. What do I do here? So it is very, very possible and important to be prepared before girls start their period. I just pictured your team as like superheroes. My team are superheroes. So I have the greatest nurse on the planet. Her name is Lisa Thebo. And what's actually hilarious is sometimes Lisa and I will be, you know, doing education outside of the center or, or giving talks for other places. And I've had people get mad at me when they're like, why is my nurse not as good as Lisa? And I'm like, I don't know, but you can't have her. (laughs) Yeah, she's, I I think that there are a group of us who get, I think because we recognize that these people have been underserved and undiagnosed and mistreated and, and that we can make such a big difference. We get like mama bear about it. And yeah, my team is incredible. And Megan Chagnu, who helped set this up, who's a newer member of my team, but she's got the same perspective, you know, which is like, let's just get in there and get things fixed and be available and be smart. And it's great. Yes. And as we, um, we will be wrapping up, but would love to take a moment to talk about your team and and let's talk period and not to throw all the questions at you, but who it's for, why it's so important that you're partnered with OBGYNs and what that relationship is like within the let's talk period team. Yeah, just before I go back to Let's Talk Period, you were talking about gyne and a huge part of the proper assessment is a pelvic exam. And so that's something that I think women need to be aware of as well, because you could have uterine fibroids or polyps that can contribute to heavy bleeding. And very often we're arranging pelvic ultrasounds for patients as well, just to try to make sure that we understand the full scope of what we're dealing with. So those, those expectations, I think, are important as well to know that that's going to be part of it. And it's obviously handled sensitively. But so in terms of let's talk period. So I had the idea for quite a while before we launched it. And it was entirely born out of my frustration of seeing women who'd been suffering and took them 10 years to get to my clinic and, you know, within three months I can make them better. And I could have done that 10 years ago too. I I started working on bleeding assessment tools or bleeding scores early in my career, which are questionnaires that ask all these detailed questions about bleeding. And it, you turn that story into a score and we have a pretty good idea what's a normal score, what's an abnormal score. And so I, I worked on that. I picked up some work that had been done by a group in Italy and we kind of modified it and, and studied it. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to launch this for family physicians. And there's going to be a flood of patients who come in because all the family docs now are going to be using bleeding scores in their clinics. And it didn't happen. And I think it didn't happen for understandable reasons. They're very busy and don't have a lot of time to get into the kind of detail that you might need to get into to really assess somebody's bleeding history because there's a lot of different kinds of questions you have to ask about nosebleeds and bruising and gum bleeding and surgical bleeding and it's not just one thing and so we decided that we were gonna not skip the family docs but 
go directly to the general public and give them information. And so we developed the SELF-BAT. So the SELF-BAT is a self-administered bleeding assessment tool. And I had a great master's student a number of years ago named Megan DeForest, whose master's project was to take uh, a bleeding score that is expert administered and turn it into something that anybody could do themselves if they have a grade four level of reading comprehension. And so I waited to launch Let's Talk Period until we had the self-bat available and tested and validated and published because I wanted not only to provide information, but I wanted to provide a tool. So somebody who's worrying about heavy periods, well, how do I figure out if they're heavy or not? Okay, well, go take the self-bat and we'll tell you. Um, we'll ask you a series of questions and we'll tell you if your bleeding is normal or abnormal. So that was really the idea behind it. From the beginning, my clinical research assistant, Julie Grable, has worked with me on the site and has really helped me manage the site. Uh, we have a social media firm that we hired from Toronto called Schmooze. They're fantastic who help us generate content. And so we have a Facebook page and an Instagram account that line up with Let's Talk Period. And we do social media posts that provide information and then provide links back to Let's Talk Period and, and also to the self-bat. Lisa Thebo, my incredible nurse, has been involved for a number of years as well and has generated some specific content on the site uh, along with Megan Shagnew for their nursing colleagues. So there's a nursing toolkit on the site. So things that nurses could get off of Let's Talk Period to help with their nursing practice and help take care of patients. And one of the other things that we did with the program actually was a high school outreach. And so in Kingston, and this was the idea of a undergrad student who contacted me because she was interested in, in getting involved, um, Lubna Hassenbakis. And so she had this idea, well, why don't we start teaching about these issues in high schools. And so we did, we um, went and did a series of sessions on what's a normal period and what's an abnormal period and what's iron deficiency and what that might make you feel like and what do you do if you have those symptoms. And then a bit about period protection. So what are different kinds of sanitary protection and what do they look like and how do you use them? And, and then a little bit about bleeding disorders as well. And so that program was very successful but we can't go to every school. So we're creating a toolkit that teachers could access from the site and use to teach in their health classes, for example. And so it was grade nine health classes that we were going into and, and teaching about menstrual health and about periods and about all of these issues. And then more recently, what's happened is that students just kind of seem to find me. And so I've had a few people join the team more recently who are undergrad students who hear about what we're doing and think it's interesting. And so we have monthly Let's Talk period meetings. And lately, of course, because of the pandemic, we do it by Zoom and nine or 10 of us um, on those calls these days, which is pretty fun when it just started out with, with Julie and I. And we're always up for a good idea. So if somebody comes along and says like, hey, what do you think about this? As long as it aligns with what we're doing and I can find the money to pay for it, we're, we're all for it. So it's been cool to see that expand in, in recent years. That's so amazing. And how can, if people, students who are listening might be interested, how, how is best to follow your work, get in touch, pitch an idea? Start following the accounts on Facebook and on Instagram and have a look at the website. Let's talk period, all one word at outlook.com. Let's talk period, one word, lowercase at outlook.com. Dr. Paula James, this has been such an amazing concentrated, like, intellectual up-level. 
I clearly love talking about this stuff. And so just to have you guys be interested and let me ramble for an hour, that's pretty, pretty cool. So thank you for your interest and attention. Dr. James and Michelle. I know. Can we get them both back on the line? I could talk to them for hours. Me too. That was just all such vital information for us to know and have. Agreed. Agreed. And luckily we can follow Dr. Paula James with the Let's Talk period team. We'll have links to them as well in the program notes. Um, So Christy, what do you say we wrap up this March episode with some tips And, of course, a reminder that you, dear listener, are not crazy. So let's start with the most helpful of tips. Christy, it's time for Christy's tips. My first tip in regards to, you know, the the heavy topic is to find a doctor you trust. Now, will it be possible to have Dr. James everywhere? I hope so. Someday, hopefully, we can clone her and, and Dr. Malik and Dr. Holmes, but it can be a process. So, you know, I encourage patients and people to be proactive. Ask friends and family for referrals. Ask your current doctor for a referral. They might always know, especially if you're looking for a specialist or an OBGYN. And when you're looking for a new doctor, think of it as an interview. You have control. So really, yeah, really focus on that. Look at it as as an interview. How do you feel when you go in? And it starts with, you know, the frontline staff. When you call, do they feel welcoming? Does the doctor answer your questions? All of those things. I actually have a couple blog posts that we can put in the show notes to help people if they want to learn a little bit more. The next tip would be to keep track of your symptoms. So when did you start? And when we're talking about periods, this can be challenging. You know, have you always had heavy periods? When, if, if something's feeling off, when did it start? How has it changed over time? And then what helps? So, you know, I've talked a little bit about what helps me feel better, yoga and heat, and then what makes things worse. So try and keep track of that. When you're talking to your doctor, it helps so much to have this information. Um, Write it down. Make sure you write down your questions that you have so that you're really prepared for that visit. And my third and most important tip of all, in my opinion, is to trust yourself If something feels off, it probably is. You are the expert on your body. If you feel dismissed by a doctor, seek a second opinion, but just always trust what you're feeling. We are experts on our bodies. Doctors are experts in medicine. I could say you could do a mic drop after that third one, (laughs) truly. Yeah, truly. We'll keep... We'll keep the mic Never on forget for a it. moment because yes. <laughs> it's right. You are the expert in yes. your body and doctors are ep- experts in the medical field. That partnership of two people working together, doctor and patient, can produce great results. 100%. Well, don't drop the mic just yet because real quick, I want to hit you with a reason, listener, that you are not crazy. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy! If you were a woman before 1952, you may have been diagnosed with hysteria. Thing is, the American Psychiatric Association listed hysteria symptoms that were synonymous with normal, functioning female sexuality. Asylum stays and hysterectomies were prescribed to uh, treat this condition. (sighs) 
Do you know what else was used to treat this condition? Tell me. You don't want to know. I really don't, but tell me. Um, leeches. Yep. Mm. I could, yeah, we could talk about... Because the history of hysteria, which I am slightly obsessed with, actually goes all the way back to ancient Egyptian times to 1900 BC. So they literally have tried everything. Male urine, leeches in our uterus to help. Oh, what? Yeah. It's horrible. So the oh, history... Not yeah, it's horrible. The history of hysteria is so dark and continues to impact our health which i have an entire module on in my training because it's that in depth it's crazy wow wait so so yeah you're not crazy stigma (laughs) but the world the thousands of years of ignorance that we are up against is nuts yeah Mm -hmm. i'm sorry jess what were you gonna say oh no i mean just i'm i'm baffled by it i'm baffled by how we are still fighting off the stigma internally mm. forget about other people diagnosing us with a made-up condition yes. as women but look what about internally having the sense of feeling crazy simply because there's a hormonal fluctuation or because emotion is present i saw one definition of hysteria that said it was a tendency to cause trouble for others like one of the original definitions are you like it really depends on who the others are oh we're gonna have to do the whole a whole episode on this christy yes we do that's our promise to you but that's it for this episode of flow and remember we want to hear from you you can find us on instagram i'm at jessica lauren richmond christy is at how to talk to your doctor and we'll look forward to seeing you in april Subscribe, rate, and share Flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. So we want to know, how's your flow? And thanks to our sponsor, Takeda, for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Board and Flo's host, Jessica Richmond and Christy Van Horn. Flo is edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be April 8th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>